welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots Podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, remember when we were going to do that series all about accounting? Yes. I still hold hopes that we will one day do that. Why? No, no. I, I mean, I do. I think it's a really interesting topic. And I do think that at some point we should do a series, but I don't know when it's going to happen. Okay, that's fair. Are we doing accounting today? Yes, we are. So today we are doing an accounting episode. It's not part of a series, but it should be, it would have been a really good part of a series. It should be a really good one because obviously one of the most interesting aspects of accounting is forensic accounting, spotting fraud, deceit, how you could look at a balance sheet and an income statement, a cash flow statement, and find things that are unusual. In fact, I think we, uh, one of our accounting episodes, or maybe the one we did, was with a professor who specialized in spotting that stuff. Yeah, I remember that one. And Joe, you must know this. I love forensic accounting so much that it's been in my Twitter bio, I think, for as long as I have had that Twitter account. I recall that. Well, today we are not going, uh, we are not speaking with a professor. We are speaking with a practitioner, and he's not just any accountant. He's someone who famously engaged in accounting fraud. Wait, a fraudster turned an accounting expert, or an accounting expert turned fraudster and then turned accounting expert again? Yeah, I think it's that. It's uh, an accounting expert. An infamous accounting fraudster who now speaks about accounting and spotting fraud. So it's right in the sweet spot. Nothing, no theory here. This is, it's all practice. <laughs> all right. Well, go ahead and tell me who it is. So people who have uh, lived in the Northeast for a while may recall the famous or infamous electronics dealership, uh, Crazy Eddie. Have you ever seen their old commercials? So I didn't really live in the Northeast in the um, 1980s, but I did have a VHS player and I had a copy of Splash. And I remember one of the ads, I think, popped up on Splash. I think anyone like who has ever seen them will remember what they were. Just this guy who was really sort of hyperactively touting discounted electronics equipment, right? Exactly right. So this company grew like crazy. It was a a cultural phenomenon in part thanks to their commercials. They ended up going public and not too long after going public, the entire thing more or less imploded as people discovered all different kinds of fraud. Well, today we are going to be talking to the CFO of Crazy Eddie. He's in studio. Sam Antar is with us. Uh, Sam, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. So you're a convicted felon, right? That is correct. Okay, but you never did any... We'll get to it, but you never did any prison time? No, I got house arrest. But believe me, after one month of house arrest, I wanted to be with the inmates. <laughs> okay, so um, let's let's go back. We'll get to that, obviously, uh, in a little bit. But let's get started. Where did Crazy Eddie come from? I know like uh, you were its CFO and so obviously intimately involved with the fraud, but what's the history of this uh, electronics dealership? Crazy Eddie's was a single-store retailer starting in 1969. It was originally known as ERS Electronics, doing businesses, sights, and sounds. It was run by my cousin Eddie, his dad, Sam M. Antar, and my cousin Ronnie Gindy. Originally, we were just a run-of-the-mill um, electronics retail store engaged in skimming and uh, 
insurance fraud, that sort of stuff. You have to understand something about Crazy Eddie's is that we were not businessmen turned criminals. We were criminals running businesses in front. Oh. Um, so there was never any... No, in other words, we didn't have this momentary lapse in judgment where we fell into crime. Crime was part of the business plan. Back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, it was something known as fair trade, where the manufacturers were allowed to set the price at the retail level. And if you didn't follow the manufacturer's guidelines on pricing, they would cut you off. Uh, That practice allowed larger retailers to bring in the customers because they had the advertising budgets. Smaller retailers like Crazy Eddie's that had the um, efficiencies to compete on price, couldn't compete on price, and were going out of business. So what Eddie decided to do was thumb his nose at the manufacturers, fight fair trade. He won that war, and in the process, he becomes the hero of the New York metropolitan area consumer. Now, discounting was, you know, we were discounters, but the discounting was subsidized by the fact that we were skimming and stealing the sales tax, especially if you're in a cash-based business, sales tax is a license to steal because the government trusts that you're going to take those cash sales, properly record them, and and give the government its share of its uh, sales tax. We were basically stealing the sales tax and using part of what we were stealing to give customers discount. That gave us the competitive advantage over other retailers. So, Sam, I'm curious. I just want to back up for one second. You say you were criminals turned into businessmen. How exactly did the plan for the Crazy Eddie's business model come about? Did you sit down around a table and sort of plan out how the entire thing would work? Or did opportunities for fraud sort of come up as you ran the business? What was the inception of it all? Both. First of all, planning is a very important part of business, and it's also an important part of crime. From the very beginning, you know, this is the late 1960s, early 1970s, when most sales of consumer electronics were made in cash. To use a credit card back in those days, you had to call it in, the retailer had to call it in, or look through this very thick book of numbers would take a half an hour. So most customers paid in cash. So the the original intent was to take the cash sales, skim, underreport your income, which you invade income taxes, but also to steal the sales tax. The sales tax in New York City now is, I think, 8.875%. Back then, it was 6%. But even at 6%, that's more than the operating profits of most American businesses. So if you can steal the sales tax, you can become wildly profitable, even if you're not making money on everything else. I mean, I think about this a lot with like modern businesses, and there are so many things like barcodes that get scanned and credit cards that get scanned. But it just seems like at the time, without much sort of digital interaction or digital trace, it must have just been really easy to lie. Right. We took advantage of the opportunities that came to us. The crazy Eddie fraud evolves over time. For instance, I started when I was 14. I was a nerdy kid. I used to read the Wall Street Journal as a kid and Barron's and the Wall Street Transcript. My cousin put me through college to major in accounting to get a CPA so I would have that implied credibility to be the future CFO of the company when it became public so we can steal more money. See, criminals don't cheat themselves out of getting a good education. Wow, that's a lot of preparation. I got straight A's in accounting. I passed the CPA exam on the first sitting when 80% of the people used to fail the CPA exam and had a 91 average on the CPA exam. Wow. Okay. So, so you get the credibility, which you already mentioned, but what else did you learn from that college degree and from the accounting experience that made you able to perpetuate the fraud for longer or in a more efficient way? How to screw people. 
Go on. How to take advantage of people. To understand crime, you have to understand the human element around you. Ethics, morality, the presumption of innocence, our laws, our rules, those limit the behavior of decent people. For me as a criminal, I don't have those limitations on my behavior when I was practicing crime. So your good nature, your ethics, your commitments to society, that limits your behavior but makes the criminal's behavior easier, that makes the criminal's execution of their crime easier. In terms of what you learned in the CFA, or when you were, sorry, when you were studying for the So in CPA, other words, I learned, I yeah. learned that ethics, when I yeah. took an ethics course, I yeah. learned that ethics limits your behavior, didn't limit mine as a criminal. So I was learning things differently than everybody else was learning things. I was learning things from the vantage point of how do you take advantage of human nature? How do you take advantage of accounting rules? How do you take advantage of the limitations of audits? What are some of those limitations? Of Audits audit? are based on samples. First of all, the word audit really is a false term. What happens is accounting firms come in, they take sample counts, they, they, they check around to see if the financial statements are uh, by and large accurate, materially uh, accurate. The reality is audits as they are practiced today are nothing more than reviews. It's kind of like running Microsoft spell check on Microsoft Word and looking for typos. Audits are really not designed to find fraud. And that makes my job as a criminal much easier. The other thing that I learned was is that, well, this is back in the 1980s when accounting was um, a male-dominated profession. The, the females that entered accounting back in those days were considered token females. It was a male-dominated fiefdom. It was all about the men. And most of the legwork done on the audits were these kids one, two, three years out of college, mostly single. So I learned that most of the work is done by inexperienced kids right out of college with real no training into the mind of criminals like I was practicing to be. So how exactly did you go about fooling the auditors? Walk us through, like, step by step. How'd you do it? Well, in fraud, the distraction is always more important and more effective than the lie. Lie, of course. I mean, you can ask me any question on the air. If I can't handle it, I'll lie just like a criminal. It's not a problem. I'm only kidding. But my point being is that if you can get away with distracting somebody from asking the right question, it's less risky than having the person ask the question and you lying. So let's say audits take eight weeks to get completed. So by week six of eight, you should have 75% of your work done in 75% of the time and 25% of your work done in the remaining 25% of the time. My job as eventually the CFO of Crazy Eddie was for them to have in week six out of eight, 25% of the work done in 75% of the time. And then in the remaining 25% of the time, they would have 75% of the work left to do. Now, how did I accomplish that? through the process of distraction. Remember, these are young males doing the legwork on audits. What's the best way to distract a young male? I'm going to guess you say women. Women, that's correct. So we picked out very, very beautiful, lovely, sexy ladies to work, work side by side with our auditors, and they would end up being distracted. They'd miss key audit procedures year in and year out. That was really one of the tactics that you took? That was the tactic that we took. In other words, the distraction was always more important than the lie. So obviously, stealing the sales tax, massively profitable, it's a huge margin, easy money. What else did you do in the fraud department at Crazy Eddie to uh, 
from 1969 uh, to 1984, Crazy 80s was a private company. I joined the company in 1971. We were mostly income tax evasion, insurance fraud. Uh, New York, cold winters is before the days of global warming. You know, pipes would, uh, would fr- the water in the pipes would freeze. They'd burst. Merchandise would be water damaged. Then we would save the water damaged merchandise for the next flood and the next flood and the next flood. They were called flood goods. Around 1980, four years before we go public, we conceive of a plan to go public. In other words, we were going to stop screwing the Internal Revenue Service, stop our income tax evasion. We were going to do a fraud by going legit. How do you do that? You gradually reduce your skimming down to zero, which increases your reported profits year in and year out. It shows that you're growing faster because you're reporting more of your profits each year. Most of the growth in reported profits is only accomplished by the gradual reduction in skimming. So we go public in 1984, the only year where we produce legit financials. But the previous years, we showed huge growth only because we were gradually reducing our skimming down to zero. Then we go public. And we take the money that we skimmed from Crazy Eddie's and evaded taxes on, and we put it back in the company. That was known as the Panama Pump. It was the plot of the movie The Accountant with Ben Affleck when he goes, Crazy Eddie in the Panama Pump, Crazy Eddie in the Panama Pump. Well, let me explain to you how that works. If I skim a million dollars and the income tax rate is 40%, I'm evading $400,000 in taxes. Now, if I instead put the money into crazy A's a million dollars and the tax rate is 40%. I'm overpaying on my taxes, $400,000, but I still have an inflated net income of $1 million, less than $400 in overpaid taxes of $600,000. If my stock is trading at 30 times earnings, which is uh, 600,000 inflated net income times uh, 30 is $18 million. By overpaying my taxes by $400,000, I'm creating $18 million of inflated market value, and the Antars own most of the stock. I have so many questions, but uh, just before we get into what changes when you turn from a private into a public company... Could you maybe talk a little bit about the advertising strategy? Because I think it was so important and integral to a lot of people's memories of what Crazy Eddie's was. Where did that strategy come from? That actually came from Eddie. Jerry Carroll, who is the face of Crazy Eddie, he's the pitch man that you see on the commercials, was poking fun at Crazy Eddie's when Eddie bought a series of spots on, I think it was WPIX FM when people used to listen to FM radio. And Eddie hired him to be the pitch man. And we were doing these spots day in and day out. 24-7. Crazy Eddie at the time had better name recognition than Coca-Cola and Mayor Ed Koch. Even today, people talk about Crazy Eddie when they're making fun of Trump or Bernie Sanders, or they're talking about deep discounts. The advertising helped us gain widespread name recognition. Saturday Night Live, Dan Aykroyd did a parody. Parodies like that, and the fact that you mentioned that it was on the uh, movie Splash, that gave us more implied credibility, that that gave us legitimacy to screw over more people. So just on that note, you have all these, these ads, which people are seeing, you're boasting about these really deep discounts. Did anyone raise red flags around the business in, in the lead up to going public? Did anyone go, wait a second, how are they actually doing this? Yes, Barron's did a real hit piece on us about four or five months before we went public. 
from the outside looking in, I see a lot of companies, they're called battleground stocks and people attack short sellers. They sue short sellers. They sue critics. I see a lot of that. Eddie's strategy was the best way to handle a critic is to ignore them. Don't give them a pedestal because once you pay attention to a critic, you're giving them their five minutes of fame and people pay attention to him too. So we basically ignored the Barron's article in one public anyway, even though the Barron's article is, I would say, about 98% correct. Well, first of all, actually, what did the Barron's article see? They obviously didn't know the inner workings, but they obviously saw something about they the business. They saw the incestuous relationship between the Antars and the business and all of the related party entities, and also the fact that the key positions were all manned by relatives. And that was a huge And they raised, they raised very, very, very tough questions. And Eddie felt that the best way to deal with Barron's is to ignore them. Just be positive. Could the business have worked legitimately? Some people say yes, I say no. The reason that Crazy Eddie's was successful was because we were stealing the sales tax. Once we went public and no longer skimmed anymore, uh, we lost that competitive edge. And it was only a matter of time before that momentum caught up with us, which eventually did in 1987. Three years after going public, we started losing money for the first time in maybe 20 years. On that note, you say it was inevitable once you went public that that would start to happen. I mean, what was the end game for Crazy Eddie's? What was the plan? At what point did you sort of exit the whole fraud and, you know, ride off into the sunset with a million dollars or whatever it was? Good question. The plan was to go public, sell stock at inflated prices. Eventually, it would catch up to itself. And then what we would do is use Wall Street's money to take it private again and recycle all over again. The problem that we had was the one flaw in the plan, in fact, we were a victim of our own success, is somebody outbid us for our own fraud using their real money. So they take over the company, they take inventory, and they find out that Crazy Eddie's is a bunch of empty boxes, a house of cards. So wait, talk about that. The plan was, the stock, I guess, had plunged? But the stock because, had plunged in 1987 because for right, the first because, time in our history, we're reporting losses right. and trying to underreport our losses, but that doesn't really help the stock price. Right. So in the years leading up to the IPO, you artificially inflate the profits by reducing the skim. Then it's public, and then you have no incentive at that point to actually take money out, and the profits are collapsing because the business trajectory looks terrible. You were going to take it private. Who bought it? Talk to us about this. Who bought the stock and then, or bought the company and then realized what a mess the whole thing was? Well, you have to find a useful idiot to partner with you on, go, on uh, taking the company private. You need somebody else's money to finance something that you know is worthless. We were approached by Milton Petrie, who was a legendary retail investor. We felt that he was inappropriate. We were approached by, the Sam, by Sam Bellsberg, the Bellsberg family of Canada. They were the right amount of sleaze for us. And at the same time, they were going to give us the latitude to run the company the way we wanted. So Eddie comes up with a bid of $7 a share. The stock was trading in the 80s at one point. So Eddie comes up with a bit of $7 a share. Of course, it wasn't his money. What year was this? So it this was 1987. Public in, it went public in? In September 84. So this is almost okay. three years later. So Eddie comes up with a bit of $7 a share thinking that, you know, it's ours, right? Yeah. We didn't expect a week later, another public company run by Elias Zinn, it's called Entertainment Marketing, bids $8 a share. What happened ultimately is that Elias Zinn buys enough stock to vote us out in, uh, at the annual meeting of shareholders. In other words, he, he runs a proxy contest and he buys more than enough stock 
to vote us out of power. Because at that time in 1987, the Antars already milked the cow. They already sold about $90 million worth of stock. That's why they were going to take over the company supposedly on the cheap. In fact, the first SEC investigation of Crazy Eddie wasn't about inflating profits. They thought we deliberately tanked the company to buy the company on the cheap. In other words, the SEC was right that there was a fraud, but was wrong as to the nature of the fraud. So I'm just curious, before this other entity bought you out, bought Crazy Eddie's, how desperately were you trying to dissuade them from doing that? Because you knew that everything would sort of come to light once they did that, right? Well, you can't exactly tell them there was a fraud, but there was this meeting with our lawyers and Eddie was present. Uh, Our lawyers were Paul Weiss, Riff, Kime, Wharton, and Garrison, real white shoe firm right over here on Park Avenue. And they came with their uh, white shoe lawyers and we're sitting down at the table and they're making all kinds of demands. Why don't you give up the company now? Uh, it's our company. We have enough stock. Why don't you make a graceful exit? And Eddie goes to them and in a sarcastic tone says, guys, you really don't know what you're getting into. And they're demanding you're taking the company from you. You wait and see. Well, they took the company from us and they ended up with empty boxes. Walk us through that. So they they, they bought the company, the ultimate winner's curse, where the winning, uh, you always overpay, but they all, they don't, really don't, overpay. Don't wish too hard for something because you might get it. And they right. got it. So then what happened? They discovered it. And then how did that turn into legal proceedings? Oh, you had the, the people that took over Crazy Eddie's. They decided to opt out of the class actions and sue us separately. Then I had the U.S. Postal Service. I had the, uh, the inspectors from them, the SEC, the FBI. But there was one problem. Most of the documentation was destroyed. In fact, the documentation we couldn't destroy, there was this warehouse full of documents. In those days, everything was kept in paper and boxes. We took an entire warehouse of documents and we mixed up all of the paperwork. 20 years later, I'm eating lunch with the FBI guy that investigated the Crazy Eddie case, the lead uh, FBI agent. He says, the one thing that pissed me off more than you destroying documents, getting people to lie under oath, was the fact that you took that whole warehouse and tossed all hundreds of thousands, millions of pieces of paper around, and we had to go put it back together. As this investigation unfolds, how much are people at the SEC or investigators, how much are they getting right as they try to uncover what exactly happened at Crazy Eddie's? Well, the initial two years of the investigation from 1987 to 1989, they had they had immunized witnesses. At the time, I was not, of course, cooperating with the feds. I was... Uh, fighting against the feds, but the two immunized witnesses protected one side of the family that was against Eddie and pointed the finger at the other side of the family that was with Eddie. So the government was on the right track, but not entirely on the right track. Around 1989, I realized that I was being set up by a different faction within the family to take the fall with Eddie. And Eddie, rather than stick with me, decides to move all of his remaining dollars overseas. So here I am left alone, facing years in prison where my mentor, the guy that put me through college, the leader of Crazy Eddie's, he's going against me and his own family that was going against him had had set me up to take the fall. And I decided at that point that I'm going to cooperate with the feds. Just to be fair, I didn't cooperate with the feds out of any sense of remorse, out of any sense of feeling uh, bad for my crimes. I only did it to save my rear end. You're very uh, blunt about this and the fact that you're a criminal from the beginning that you didn't feel any remorse. It was purely a selfish motive. Because normally when you hear from uh, criminals, 
especially later on in their life, they'll sort of like get a little bit more sentimental on how awful what they did was and they'll have some sort of moral reflection. I could fake today, that if you'd like. Well, no, I'm curious. I could fake sentimentality. No, no, it's like, I'm curious. Today, do you feel like, are you still a criminal in the sense that like whatever that chip is in your brain or that lack of a chip that for most people, um, like you said in the beginning, most people just aren't inclined to cheat and steal and rob and all this stuff and criminals take advantage of that. Do you feel that you're still that same person today? Well, I can make the world feel safe and say, you know, I will never do crime again. I feel remorseful for the things that I've done. Or I can leave it up to you to decide. The reality is you really never know anybody's true intentions. And I can get up here and I can fake remorse very, very easy. Or I can tell you that I'm going to commit crime in the future. What I would say this is if I were to do it all over again, I would just do it better. It's good for anyone in the future who wants to go into business with uh, Sam Antares. A good, a good warning. Well, speaking of that, what are you up to now, Sam? The one thing that can't be taken away from you is your education. And I got a very good education on my way to becoming a more effective and more sophisticated criminal. So even though my CPA license, it took New York State 15 years to pull it, but that's another story. Even though I've lost my CPA license, I didn't lose the knowledge that got me to the CPA license. And over the years, I've worked for the government. I've worked for major law firms involved in class actions against public companies. I've worked for hedge funds and doing analytical work, forensic accounting work. One thing that I'm really struck by, again, it just seems like if you go back to the 60s and 70s where everything was on paper and there weren't barcodes and credit card scan, like it didn't seem like it was that hard to lie. And so probably there are certain styles of fraud, including just sort of like very gross uh, theft of the sales taxes that would be much harder for any retailer to get away with. But has fraud gotten harder or has it just mutated into something else? It's and, mutated. And, and so what are easier. the... Well, it's gotten easier. What are the new avenues of fraud that people should be looking out for? Well, first of all, people don't care about lies today. In the old days, people used to care about lies. You see CEOs lying, lying serially, lying consistently over time. We could talk about a bunch of battleground stocks where the CEOs are, are, are hardly ever truthful, and truth for them is just a matter of convenience when they decide to be truthful. So today we live in a different world where the values change. Also, as far as white-collar crime in general, we live in the golden era of white-collar crime. Today, there's less federal prosecutions of white-collar criminals than when I was doing crime in the 1980s, and the economy was maybe 80% lower than it is today. So the economy is five times larger than when I was doing crime, maybe 10 times larger, but we're prosecuting less white-collar criminals. The government has effectively taken white-collar crime and turned it into a civil tort to be litigated into the civil courts. So today, very rarely do criminals actually get prosecuted and very rarely do criminals actually go to jail. Yes, once in a while, somebody gets hit with a 20-year sentence, but that's very far few in between. If I were to choose when I would have done crime, I would have said I should have waited until I was in my 50s or 60s instead of doing crime as a teenager. I would have been more effective and I could have been a legitimate, in the eyes of the public at least, a legitimate business person today. There's one thing that kind of springs to my mind when, when you say that, the difference between crime nowadays versus white-collar crime in the 60s or 70s, and that's just when it comes to company valuation, the amount of intangible assets that go into it. Crazy Eddie's was all about overvaluing the company. When you look at 
how modern companies build their value. And so much of it is on brand recognition and intangible stuff that goes into inflating the value. Does that strike you as, as a sort of avenue for white collar crime? There are a lot of avenues for white collar fraud. Intangible assets could be one, the overvaluation by the public. The biggest problem that most people have is that they read Wall Street research reports and believe the Wall Street hype. I could tell you as a retired criminal, you want to say formal, or maybe I'm a current criminal. Hope you will never know. I could tell you that Wall Street analysts are very, very easy to fool. They're generally just parrots for what management tells them. So that's one of the problems. The other problem is people read financial statements the wrong way. They read it from the beginning to the end. They should be reading from the end to the beginning. Read the footnotes first. Look for slight inconsistency. Changes in language are very, very important. Like in the Crazy Eddie fraud, we changed one word from received to earned. Received to earned, and we were able to inflate our profits by $20 million by writing up $20 million of phony chargebacks to manufacturers by changing one word in our footnotes. People have to learn to analyze and study rather than to just look at the bottom line numbers and look at the trends. Any number in the financial statement, even cash, can be screwed around with and played with. Crazy Eddie's Panama pump was an inflation of our cash on hand on our balance sheet. People think that cash is king. The statement of cash flows can't be tinkered with. It can. Chinese companies are, are very, very uh, good at playing with the statement of cash flows by, by playing around with entities that they don't control, that they do control, rather, but they don't consolidate. It's called variable interest entities, entities that they control effectively, but they don't consolidate. And they use these unconsolidated entities to offload all of their capital expenditures to inflate their statement of uh, cash flows, their free cash flows. It's done all the time. There's millions of ways to manipulate. Crime evolves over time. We cannot stop crime. All we can do is try to manage, contain it, and minimize it. For every measure, criminals figure out a countermeasure. For every countermeasure you figure out, criminals figure out a new measure. Sam Antar, on that note, really appreciate you coming on. I know there's tons more we could get into about exactly what you were going into at the end about um, all the different countermeasures and what criminals do, but I think that was a great overview of your career and some general guidelines to think about. Really appreciate it. I thank you for having me on. Tracy, I really enjoyed that conversation. Now I really do think we got to do our whole accounting series. Yes, yes. Revive the accounting series. I almost want to have Sam guest host it, or I would actually listen to a Sam Antar podcast because I think that he would probably, like just all that stuff about different ways to uh, read the financial statements, different things to spot in terms of how companies still cheat, how new regulations have different countermeasures. I would really like to listen to a uh, Sam Antar podcast, I think, uh, just on all these topics. Absolutely. 
But just listening to the story of Crazy Eddie's itself, we mentioned one movie at the beginning, which was Splash, but I was thinking of at least like two other movies while we were interviewing Sam. And one of those was The Producers, where, you know, they try to create a Broadway flop, but then it becomes a success. And then they get caught out in their fraud. That was kind of similar. And the other one was Catch Me If You Can, right, where the fraudster then teams up with the government and becomes a sort of fraud expert. But the whole thing is... Sort of surreal, but really um, interesting to listen to. You know what I thought that I hadn't thought about quite uh, this way before until Sam described it was how the motivations of a fraudster change between a private and a public company. Because obviously, if you're a private company, your only way of sort of cashing out is literally cashing out or is just you take the money. You don't have any other option, money comes in that's not supposed to be yours and you pocket it in some way, that completely changes in a public company because a public company is entirely based on the value that you have today is based on the public's expectations of earnings tomorrow. So if you can do something to confuse those expectations or to inflate them, then you don't have to pull any cash out of the company itself. You just do something very seemingly legitimate, which is call your broker and sell some stock. And so suddenly your entire relationship with what constitutes fraud or what you're trying to do changes. And so it makes sense that you steal from the company while you're private and then pump profits back into the company when it's public to confuse those public uh, interpretations of what's going on. Yeah, that's a really good summary and definitely an interesting point. The other thing I was thinking when he was talking about all of this is, do you ever wonder how many frauds go by sort of unnoticed? Like what percentage of the world is built on some sort of fraudulent basis and it just never gets found out? I feel like it's uh, it's everywhere. I'm sure Sam would agree. He's nodding his head because he's still here at the studio nodding his head. Uh, should we wrap it up there? Yes, on that happy note, let's uh, wrap it. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our guest on Twitter. He's Sam Antar at Sam Antar. And don't forget to follow our producers on Twitter. Topher Forges, he's at Forges T. And Laura Carlson at Laura M. Carlson. And be sure to follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. Thanks for listening.